Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Cold Red, our favorite podcast. And with me uh, for tonight, as always, is the wonderful Dr. Ray Carr. Hello, Ray. Jim, how are you? It's good to see you again. I am doing fine. And uh, what are the odds we have two doctors on the show tonight? We're also here with Dr. Rob Leonard, a linguist extraordinaire out of Hofstra University. And like Ray and I, who have worked together over the years, Ray and I are very friendly. Rob and I have worked together over the years, and we're very friendly. So not just professional association here, but personal association. So, Rob, uh, great to have you on Cold Red. Thanks. Great to be here. So um, you're the first linguist or forensic linguist we've had as a guest on the show. I guess I'm the built-in one uh, along with Profiler, but it'll be interesting to have you uh, uh, walk us through a little bit of your life and your career. But um, uh, I know it's no surprise when people want to know a little bit about your past, including back into your college days. And I, uh, when I was introducing uh, our last episode, I mentioned the next guest is not only a linguist, but a former rock and roller. So, Rob, Give us a little bit up front here of how the whole Sha Na Na thing started. Sure. Um, ah, so I was in college in a college singing group. I was at Columbia College, and there was what would now be an a cappella singing group uh, called the Columbia Kingsmen. And um, we would play in blazers, and we played mostly across the street at the uh, hospital. Um, uh, uh, a ward for the for people who needed uh, help or girls' schools, and that was about it. And then one day uh, we were asked to perform on campus, and we didn't have enough songs, so we did fifty songs doo wop. Now this is before any revival of doo wop. This is before Happy Days or the Grease um, uh, movie, graffiti, right, or any of that. Oh, absolutely. So, so you're, is this a 66, 67 time frame? Yeah, right. So this this actually happens in 69. Um, but we had been singing doo-wop to ourselves because it was good harmony and there wasn't a lot of good harmony in rock and roll at that point. So um, we did some 50s doo-wop and the audience went crazy. And my brother told me, Rob, call the boys to your apartment. I was the leader of the group. And uh, I said, uh, why? He says, I have something to say to them. Okay, so I called them all to my apartment on 118th Street. And he said, boys. And he went around the room pointing at everybody in their face. He says, I am going to make you rock and <laughs> roll stars. So here's my 23-year-old brother, you know. Um, and they all looked at each other and said, yeah, sure, George. Okay. Uh, and he said, no, 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 let me explain. And he turned us into a 1950s group, took off our blazers, dressed us like uh, what the uh, press used to call faux thugs, you know, with uh, T-shirts with the, the camel pack or lucky strike uh, under your uh, um, uh, T-shirt shoulder and choreographed like 25 songs. We found uh, Bye Bye Birdie, uh, costumes in a, um, a costume rental place across the river. 
and three of us dressed uh, in go lame like uh, um, Elvis Presley did and learned a special. Uh, my brother had been taking dance uh, the whole time. And we always would go to the Apollo Theater on, on 25th Street and see the soul singers. And they were the most fabulous dancers. So we worked up an act and it just hit. Everybody just couldn't believe it. They loved it. It was the music of their uh, childhood. And it was uh, a return to a time when, you know, like right now, every the country is divided, right? Uh, tremendously divided. But it's nothing compared to what the country was divided with in 1968, because every single male stood a very good chance of going to Vietnam. 25 guys that I went to school with died in Vietnam. Um, so this was like a return to some Garden of Eden, a make-believe, uh, apolitical, um, uh, just, you know, playground. And that indeed, if you notice, is what's in the Grease movie and all of that. But we invented that. My brother invented it. Even the word Grease was not used for, we were called hoods or JDs, you know, juvenile delinquents or something back in those days. And my brother was in, um, in literature class and the professor said, yes, uh, the great poem, the grandeur that was Rome, the glory that was Greece. And my brother said, that's the <laughs> title for our outdoor concert how about that so everybody in the colleges loved it but now what we're going to do so a couple of guys went around to all the clubs in new york and said would you like us to play and they all said are you ready of freezing minds <laughs> 1950s revival get the hell out of here except one club and we didn't know it then but it was half owned by Andy Warhol, the wow. master of, yeah, of avant-garde. And we were avant-garde. We were super ahead of the pack. Remember, nobody even breathed 50s revival yet. And we played there. And it was called Steve Paul's The Scene. And it was the most inside nightclub in all of New York. And all the stars, all the big rockers and everybody would go there. People didn't have entourages in those days. They'd just go there to hang out um, if they had nothing else to do. And I met Janis Joplin and uh, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, we, we perform one night and I go, answer, teen angel, answer me, please. I go down on my knees. I look up and not six, seven feet away is a tiny place. Jimi Hendrix is jumping up and down on a chair, clapping and screaming, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I hung out with him the whole night, nicest guy in the world, taught me how to drink tequila, you know, with the salt and the lime, and really nice guy. And this guy tried to uh, sell him a stolen um, camera. That he had under. <laughs> no kidding, we're in the men's yeah. room, and, he, and this guy follows us, and he says, Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, you want to buy this camera? <laughs> you just what a camera for? But he says, "Look, man, it's clear the thing's hot. So just put it away, put it back, put it back where you got it, or something. You know, you don't want to." He actually gave him a little talk about your your mother wants to see you in jail, or if you have kids and stuff. And he gave the guy twenty bucks, which was a lot of money then. And yeah. uh, he's just the nicest, yeah. most generous guy in the world. And it was he who got us into uh, Woodstock. I mean, we were brand, brand new. Um, and even though we had a nice uh, 
groundswell of uh, the press. Uh, so one night, uh, and it was the last night that that steep wall scene was ever in existence because uh, organized crime shut it down that night for non-payment of dues. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So I we finish our set, and I go into the postage stamp size uh, um, dressing room, and I see a super stoned hippie right out of central casting with little pinwheels for eyes, stoned <laughs> out of his brain, flashing me the peace sign, hair below his shoulders, and he says, you guys, you guys, and doesn't say anything more. I said, oh, it's so nice of you. And I took him and I frog marched him a little bit out to the door and I was gently pushing him out when our manager came in, a friend of my brother's, and said, no, no. And he, we all three of us went down. He picked up the other guy. He was the booker for Woodstock. So he stands what? up, the stone hippie stands up and completes his sentence. You guys have to be at Woodstock. And I said to our manager, what's Woodstock? He says, I don't know, but I guess we'll find out. And that night, the mob closed the place. They uh, tear gas, you name it. And it was a really interesting place. It was downstairs. It was like off 8th Avenue, uh, 48th. Terrible, terrible neighborhood. And, um, and I never saw any enormous bouncers. I just couldn't figure it out. And the uh, manager, a great guy named Teddy, uh, uh, he and I would sit and he talked to me. I was 19 or 20. And um, I said, I don't get it. Where are your bouncers? And he says, oh, okay, wait, wait. I'll show you. Hey, Louie. He calls over Louie. Louie's this guy from 5'8". And he's from the Philippines. And uh, I said, yeah, so Louie's the bouncer? He says, yeah, he's he's a sap man. I say, he's a sap man? Yeah. He says, show Rob. And he, yeah, yeah. So he, he extends his arm and uh, a leather uh, sap, uh, blackjack, appears in his hand. Mm -hmm. And he said, so we don't want out and out fights around here. But like, let's say some big guy is roughing up his girlfriend. So Louie goes over to him and says, oh, sir, sir. And he puts his hand behind the guy's head, right, on the back of his head. And Louie taps me on that part of my head i almost passed out he says and the guy will crumple and then we take a couple of waiters and climb up the stairs and uh and that's how we keep uh, peace <laughs> <laughs> so then they amuse themselves showing uh, teaching me how to use the sap on the back of a guy's head and hiding it in my sleeve i mean it was like really something from a, a humphrey bogart movie you know and as a reminder here you're a full-time college student at columbia that's right. Are you are you a linguistics major at this point? Um, yeah, more or less. I, I was very interested in, in languages. Yeah, yeah. And folks, we will get into language crimes and all that stuff. But this part you're going to be continued fascination with. So somehow you wind up uh, going to Woodstock and you open for Hendrix early one morning. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We were supposed to go on uh, midnight uh, and uh, they were so late. We wound up going on uh, like at seven in the morning, having spent the entire night on stage. So instead of my, oh, baby, it was, oh, baby. <laughs> it was <laughs> but, you know, by then nobody cared, I think. And um, yeah, so uh, that was really an experience. And we played the Fillmore East, the Fillmore West. I used to uh, be out in the Fillmore West drinking wine uh, with uh, Janis Joplin. 
Janis Joplin was always had wine and she never took drugs, unlike everybody else in the entire Fillmore West, except her and me, which is why I am still here. Um, and I would drink her wine. <laughs> it never occurred to me to buy my own wine. I don't know. So we'd be backstage and we'd be drinking wine. And she was always complaining to me about the lack of male groupies. And I said, gee, Janice, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so Janice was really uh, kind and nice too. And we played with Santana and the Kinks, um, the Grateful Dead many, many times. Um, B.B. King, Albert King, Little Richard. Imagine that in Detroit, uh, the, the whole bill was B.B. King, Little Richard, and Shanana. How is that for a, a mixed bill, huh? Great. Wow. Get much better than that. That's right. And and Rob, during this time, you picked up sort of an unusual language, yeah. and you chose that as your sort of required language in linguistics for a very sort of pragmatic reason. Tell us about that. Yeah, it wasn't given on Mondays or Fridays. Um, so <laughs> we we were so popular. Listen, a real overnight success. I mean, we were the only real overnight success group I've ever met. Um, so we would fly away on Thursday and come back on Tuesday. And in those days, you're supposed to go to school five days a week. And out of 55 languages taught at Columbia, only one was not given Monday through Friday. And that was Swahili, uh, East African Bantu language. And as I love telling my students after uh, now I've taught Swahili in university level all over the world for, I don't know, four decades I said, the day I walked into Swahili class, I couldn't even found Africa on a map. That's how little I knew about it. But I wound up, when I quit the group, I got a fellowship from Columbia, and I got a Fulbright fellowship, and I was supposed to go to East Africa for a year uh, and travel around in sailing dows uh, on the East African coast, visiting various um, uh, villages and, and learning the local dialects up by the Somali border. And I stayed four or five and I wound up running a research center there. So never in a million years did I think, you know, back when my brother said, I'm going to make you boys rock and roll stars, that I'd wind up being a Swahili expert. And I wrote my doctoral dissertation on it. At wow. Let me ask you a question, Rob. Sure. Time Magazine listed you as a number two of the top 10 smartest rock stars. Yeah, I, know. I was so, trying to get an attorney to sue them. Well, who's number one? Oh, he's the uh, guitarist for Queen. He's an astrophysicist. Get out of here. <laughs> that's, that's, that's unbelievable. And then, and then you made another statement. You, you said not too many people in this world can say that they They've, work with the FBI and Grateful Dead. That's right. With both the FBI and the Grateful Dead. I mean, for all I know, I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, but was there really a difference? <laughs> well, the Grateful Dead didn't go by acronyms. No, there you go. Okay, there you go. That's that's that's. I find that amazing, fascinating. I can't believe <laughs> it. Kind of pretty absurd, myself, Ray. I'll tell you. Yeah, the guitarist from Queen was an astrophysicist. Yeah, yeah, he was before. Um, oh, wow. gee, I can't, I can't remember his name off. A very good astrophysicist, too. I think time was just more impressed with astrophysics than forensic linguistics. It sounded, uh, you know, so I only made number two. But I'm going to sue them eventually. Yeah, you would have you gave him a run for his money, Rob. I know you would. <laughs> you would. So, so bring us up. So obviously, at some point, 
Shannon thing was fun for a few years, but you said, yeah, for future purposes, because there was a TV show later, but you had yeah. nothing to do with that, right? Hey, no. And, and the group was uh, the band in the Grease movie, the Sock Hop That's band right. in the Grease movie. That's right. Oh, no, I, I could have continued, but everybody I knew started dying of drug overdoses. Mm-hmm. And it sort of took the fun away. Jimmy mm-hmm. then died of a drug overdose. Janice, who we were all sure never took drugs, died of a drug overdose. Our own lead guitarist, I think one more year, he died of a drug overdose. Wow. And, you know, like a lot of businesses, when you know it too close up, it, it isn't as attractive as, as it might be. And at just that moment, Columbia said to me, we accept you into the graduate school and we will give you all paid uh, tuition, stipend. You don't have to teach even, which is rare. Uh, all the way through to the PhD. And I said, oh, I'm never going to be able to get this again. Yeah. So as you said, uh, Jim, you know, that was an opportunity for the long term that I just couldn't pass up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, some of us did that a little bit later in life, like Ray and I getting our uh, advanced degrees, but you got it uh, early and over with, and you actually uh, put a, a rock star uh, aspect of your life on hold. And um, so, yeah, so that's that's a very interesting story. And Rob, I'm going to ask you, do you remember how you first contacted me? And uh, when I was in yeah. the FBI and I had yeah. not heard of you before. Tell your version of the story, then I'll kind of tell mine. Yeah, right. Um, I had been interested in forensic linguistics, and I had done some cases. I don't think I'd done any. I, I know that the first case that you helped me with, for example, the Hummert murder, um, I hadn't testified in a murder trial, um, but I was really interested in the application of linguistics to forensic sciences. And Roger Shy um, uh, was my mentor in that. And he was encouraging me to get involved. And then came the anthrax case. And Benji Wall, my uh, mentor from Columbia, and I were very, very interested in the anthrax uh, case and and analyzing the language evidence. And I guess we were both on a listserv. And I reached out to you and I said, you know, is uh, anybody at the FBI interested in uh, what uh, two linguists might have to say about that? And uh, as I remember you telling me lately that the FBI was not interested in linguists at that moment. I mean, that was something that you uh, really were astonishing at. I mean, you showed the FBI the real utility of forensic linguistics with the Unabomb case, but it didn't seep into all areas still. Yeah. And so from my version of that story, we both belong to the then and now, the International Association of Forensic Linguists were on a listserv. And I guess our names were going you know, back and forth. And all of a sudden, I get a cold email one day, Ray, on uh, the FBI, I think, dot, academy dot at edu back then. I know the email addresses have changed. Uh, Robert Leonard Hofstra University. Hello, um, Jim. I'm, I'm a linguist at Hofstra. And I know there's this anthrax case hasn't been solved. Would you uh, be interested in my help? Um, you know. Contact me here, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, huh. So I go to one of our uh, analysts, uh, Helene Barsos, and I said, you went to Hofstra, right? Yeah, yeah. I said, you had a professor, uh, uh, or I had a professor reach me, reach out to me just, you know, an hour ago, and 
His name's Rob Leonard. You know? Oh, Rob Leonard. Yeah, he was. He's a linguist. He's a great instructor. He really knows his stuff. He was one of my favorite, you know, professors of all time. And she's only about in her maybe mid twenties at this point. I said, Oh, okay. Well, I guess he sounds legit. And like as an afterthought, oh yeah, and he was in this big rock band back in the day. I said, wait, a professor, linguist, and a rock band? That's kind of unusual. What was the band? And she goes, oh, hold on. I can't remember. Hold on. It begins with an S. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Steppenwolf. No. Uh, Steve Miller Band. No. Uh, You know, uh, know, Spiral Staircase. I'm I'm thinking all the different venues and and, and genre, I should say. And uh, finally, she goes, Shanana. So, of course, our listeners already know and our audience knows how it turned out to be. So, oh, yeah, I remember Sean and I. Yeah, the TV show. Yeah, and of course, I found out later you didn't, you weren't involved in the TV show. But um, so anyway, we get in touch on email, and um, I said, all right, hey, Rob, nice to meet you. We may have had a phone call, and uh, you said you're willing to devote your time to the several writings involved in the Anthrax case, which now this is about 2004-ish, 2005-ish. The case is still on Saab. And Ray, um, I've, I've had some problem with the FBI in recent years, but that always stuck in my crawl how the original task force for the Amerithrax case yeah. just really, they blew that. And we'll save that for some other podcast. But I do reach out for them and say, hey, I have this linguist, this professor. Uh, he's uh, willing to help out anything you want. Of course, I'm a linguist. I can help out. And the guy gets back to me after a few emails, a task force member, says, uh, 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 we were going to forward Rob's email to the head of the task force. He said, yeah, he doesn't do emails. And this is like 2005. I said, wait, the head of the... Amerithrax Task Force doesn't do emails. Well, he does the FBI ones that he has to, but that's it. How about phone calls? Well, he's not going to take a phone call from a professor he doesn't know. I said, you know what? And they already didn't want me in the task force for some reason. Because the profilers went up and said, it's not this guy, this biochemist they had as a suspect, and it's someone else, not him. And they didn't like that, and they made that guy's life hell. It's all in my fourth book coming out in a few months. But anyway, so this is how Rob and I met. And then we, I said, sorry, Rob, they don't want me or you. <laughs> and Rob's probably saying, that's a little bit odd, even though my success with Unabom and other cases. Yeah. Uh, but there was a whole personality thing up there. Well, we won't Jim, get into it's that. not really odd because you know what? Forensic linguistics, even though that was used in, in helping to solve the Unabom case, it was something that was foreign to everybody. Nobody actually even knew if you said forensic, if you said statement analysis, that's one thing. But when you say forensic linguistics, people go, what the heck is that? I and mean, they still do, of course. Exactly, yeah. they do. And sure. I'll tell you, since Jim left, I think you left in 09, right, Jim? From the 07. Bureau? 07. Well, Jim leaves in 07, and I don't think anybody really picked up the torch, Jim. They I didn't. really don't think they did. I know, you know, you had the CSTAT uh, program. I don't think that ever went anywhere. I know Andre Simmons tried to do something with that. But, yeah, there, there were some issues with forensic linguistics in general. People didn't know the value of it. And they still don't. Rob, you're exactly right. They still, to today, don't understand the value of what forensic linguistics yeah, you know, are. I, I often will get a call from a lawyer or a, an investigator or an agent, uh, and they say, I knew that there was an expert kind of expertise that could help me with this case. And they they sort of congratulate themselves, as they should, because 
They right. figured it out. And why shouldn't there be? But, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I didn't even know there was such a thing as linguistics. But there is a whole science that has been going for, you know, more than 100 years where people can get a PhD in linguistics at virtually any major university. I mean, mm -hmm. and so, and as I always say, what in the law is not language? Everything is language. Exactly. And, and we forensic linguists, we linguists, know what's under the hood. You know, race car drivers, they can operate really well. Judges and lawyers, they can speak really well. But the race car driver does not know about the physics of the internal combustion engine, nor does that person need to. But we do. And we have a whole different toolkit that, that we bring. So like uh, Jim with the, uh, with, uh, the um, Unibomb case, I mean, the fantastic uh, authorship analysis, uh, Roger with the demographics of it. I mean, we can narrow down the suspect pool if we're getting threats. I mean, this is a really, really useful uh, kind of science. But of course, it can be applied to just about anything. I mean, I was Apple's uh, linguist against both Microsoft and Amazon in their defense of their trademark App Store. I worked for the um, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada for uh, all these Fortune 550 companies uh, who deal with contract disputes, copyright, trademark, plagiarism, and a lot of true crime and murders and like that, of course. Well, there's a, there's a great question. When we talk, and, and you and Jim, and I kind of know the answer to this, but I don't think our audience does. What kind of cases does a forensic linguistic uh, person actually get get involved in? Can you give me, can you give a, I know you and Jim were involved in some cases together, but what are the general cases? Is it all homicides? Is it rapes? What is it you guys get involved in? It can be, uh, well, you want to talk for a bit, uh, Jim, about your cases? I'll start it, but I, I'd, I'd like you then to take over at some point. Sure. So, if anyone who knows me and now they're learning about Rob Leonard, you know, we came into linguistics in different ways. For me, it was trial by fire. It basically the biggest authorial analysis case, probably to this day, yeah. uh, uh, certainly in a criminal case. And uh, and I had to kind of invent my own way through it. And then I all of a sudden became the expert. Ray, you know how it is. You're successful yep. in yep. a case in the FBI. I won't yes. say I was lucky. I won't say any agents would be lucky, but you you apply everything you know from your experience, your education, and things come together. Whether you like it or not, then you become the Bureau's expert. So I was working more cases even after Unibom, and I was actually testified for the first time in a stalking case up in uh, northern New Jersey. It was a federal case. And, uh, you know, the defense attorney really did his best to rip me across, uh, uh, you know, uh, rip me in every way he could because I didn't have any formal training. I had a master's in psychology, but no formal training in, uh, in linguistics. So we won that case. It was upheld on appeal, everything. Bad guy got put in prison. But before I got off the stand that day, I said, I'm going back to school. I believe in linguistics. I didn't even really call it that then. I called it text analysis. Mm -hmm. um, although I certainly knew about linguistics and forensic linguistics. But I said, I'm going back to school. And I found Georgetown University right in the DC area. The Bureau kind of gave me a scholarship. I went back and forth to classes twice a week, the old fashioned way, driving an hour up and an hour back and then still working cases. In the meantime, I was probably the only person on campus carrying a weapon, at least under my jacket or sport coat or in my old fanny pack. But uh, so 
but now I'm working for the FBI, so I'm only working criminal cases and only for the prosecution, both state and uh, and federal level. So, um, so, but of course, there's a whole other world out there of forensic linguistics, and and then uh, so I eventually got my degree in '05. I didn't officially call myself a linguist until then, um, and uh, but I'm still working criminal cases. But Rob, you were working criminal cases. We can get into maybe your first big one was Hummer, but you were certainly working some of these trademark cases. And people around the world, there's linguists that do asylum cases, or a lot of borders in Europe where okay. people come across and they don't know if they're real um, refugees or, right. or have been you know harassed by the other government. And they actually test them for their dialect features. That's and there are right. some linguists that have very, very specific skill sets. They can tell if someone's from you know, uh, Eastern Slovakia or Western Slovakia and have tracked and, and their preference. a real yeah, problem right. with that. When we were at um, at Aston in Birmingham in, what was it, 2011? Um, for the, Yeah, for that conference, a guy uh, gave a presentation about the asylum. And I said that as somebody else was supposed to have said, I, I spent a long time in East Africa and I know that there are dialects spoken in areas that were terrorized by Swahili and by uh, Somali Shifta, which are bandits who come across um, the border. And those people migrated down or tried to get out of the country because they, they, nobody wanted them. And if they spoke their dialect, they felt like there were bumpkins, country bumpkins. People didn't want to speak those dialects. Kids who spoke those dialects to me when I was on their islands were shamed to say it when they saw me in the city. So imagine these people being interviewed by a Swahili speaker who was not a linguist. And he says, they're not speaking that dialect. They are probably lying. They're not from mm -hmm. there. See, so we, I really, really uh, tried to instill in those people the importance of having people who were scientists and not just going by the seat of their pants. Yeah. So um, we do a lot of training uh, so that, I mean, Jim and I, gosh, we, we trained so many different agencies. And do you remember we were on uh, Statue of Liberty? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, gosh. Um, anyway. We slept, we slept overnight in separate rooms on the Statue of Liberty Island. I guess, is that Governor's Island? And, no, um, the island, and they came Liberty and Island, that's right. tour. Yeah, uh, and we were. It was so cool. We had to bring our own pillows and sheets. I remember, but yeah. I said to sleep on the stat Liberty wow. Island was really cool. And then we did the training the next day. So that was. Do you remember? Nice event. They came at uh, you know an evening, and they said, "Hey, you guys want a tour of uh, Lady Liberty?" And we said, "Sure." So uh, we had a, a private tour, just Jim and me, and we were standing on the apron. Uh, and one of them said that his friend had been on duty 9-11. I just listened to your episode on 9-11, guys. Maybe you weren't standing next to me, Jim. I don't remember. Do you remember this? He said that his friend said that the second plane was coming straight at them at the at Statue of Liberty, and at the very last moment, it went up, and into the second tower. And they hypothesized, remember it was like nine, it was early. And oh, yeah. they hypothesized that it was because sometimes there's lines of people snaking around, thousands of people waiting to get into the Statue of Liberty. And when the terrorists saw that there was nobody there, they 
went to their secondary target. Pretty astonishing. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Uh, yeah. That's that's amazing. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are listening. I never knew that. I mean, they're saying the same thing. I never knew that. Oh, my God. Well, you know, we heard it from a guard. I mean, we have no reason to doubt him. And he sure, heard sure. his friend, his co-worker who was there. So it, it's it's probably very true. Yeah. But you, to go back to the applications of forensic linguistics, um, well, you did a good job on the, the on those guys' analysis, uh, Jim. God, I mean, Jim and I have taught so many times together. I, I probably remember a lot of your cases and your analyses better than you do, Jim. But like right now, uh, there's IARPA, the Director of National Intelligence, right? IARPA is uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. They have a um, linguistic fingerprint project, and I'm a senior consultant, and people that Jim know knows very well is also on uh, that task force. Um, I work cases with the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Um, I did training for the NYPD Homicide Detectives Training Unit. Uh, worked for, I don't know, five or six, uh, U.S. attorneys, uh, this different districts. And then, uh, of well-known cases, I got dragged very late into the John Benet Ramsey case, which of course, Jim, uh, knows from beginning to end, uh, and the Coleman triple homicide and trying to figure out who were making death threats to sitting judges. And actually, I had a case, I don't know if I even told you about this, Jim, where a guy was making threats to FBI agents who's going to shoot them. And then he said, we're going to shoot their families. And then he said, I'm going to shoot anybody who delivers packages to FBI headquarters in a particular city, including workers who aren't even doing the actual delivering. But in any event, if, you know, in other words, if the post office uh, delivers or, or uh, FedEx, I'll just go out and shoot FedEx or post office workers. So that's the kind of cases that I get uh, a lot more than I, I would like, I must say, because there's a lot of crazy people out there. You mentioned Hummert a few times, and I played a sort of an indirect role in that case. I think that was 2006, 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, and in, uh, uh, it was it was an interesting case where you were going to give expert testimony but the prosecutor wasn't real sure the judge would buy it. So you enlisted me and the yep. prosecutor en enlisted me to come yep. to York County, Pennsylvania. Tell us the story from there. Tell us about the case itself. Sure. So um, a, a, there's a great forensic files on this. I'm one of three uh, experts. It's called a tight leash. Um, this uh, woman's husband found uh, a, a letter on his windshield saying, uh, this is the proof your wife is uh, of bad moral character. And he went into some detail in other language. He says, I uh, had an affair with her. Um, she was, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And then she told my fiance and my fiance had an abortion and she wouldn't. Uh, and the time is right to pay back. Now I'm back in town. So of course, everybody's terrified. And, um, so she find, let me hold, the woman finds this on her, or no, her who finds husband, this on? Her husband finds it on his windshield. And he reports and, it to the police, correct? Oh, absolutely. And shows it to her. And they have more police patrols. But everybody's terrified. She says, I don't know who that person is. 
And in the letter is a, what used to be called a glamour shot of her, uh, all made up, holding a rose. And she went to some studio uh, in, a, uh, you know, in her town and had this. And the letter said, who'd she do this for? I guess not you. She must be having affairs. So she is, uh, you know, a very low moral character. And then she's found strangled ligature in her car outside a supermarket. So the police are investigating. Um, there's physical evidence that points perhaps to the husband. And as the whole thing gets going, a second letter comes, this time to the press and to the chief detective that says, you're looking in the wrong place. I killed her. Wasn't her husband. I'm a serial killer. This is the fifth woman I killed. I'm getting good at it. So <laughs> I don't know any of this, but the Pennsylvania State Police major crimes guys come to me and they say, we'd like you to look at some letters. I said, okay. Uh, what can you tell us about whoever wrote these letters? And uh, again, Dr. Benji Walt, who was my mentor at Columbia, and he was a UCLA professor at that point, he and I analyzed the letters. And the police didn't tell me, but I mean, I assumed that they thought that as different as these letters looked, one was typed, it was all sorts of um, real detail, it was well written, more or less. And the second one was scrawled on a piece of paper, and it had apparent mistakes and things like that. I figured that maybe they thought it was from the same person. And in looking at it hard, we found that there was a very rare rhetorical device. Uh, in, in the first letter, he said, I would have liked to have found out she made sure my fiance found out. And in the second letter, she wanted to break it off. So I broke her neck. And this reusing the same verb for ironic, cruel humor stood out to me. And I said, gee, maybe this is something that everybody does and I'm just not aware of it. Uh, but I checked uh, with the, uh, the Latin teachers, the Greek teachers, and they said, no, we, this isn't pretty idiosyncratic as far as we know. And they sent me to Brigham Young University uh, where there's a guy who was a keeper of this enormous um, thesaurus, you might say, of rhetorical devices of all things. I mean, I had barely known what a rhetorical device was when I got into this. And he said, no, I've never seen this. We don't even have a word for it. So I said to the judge in a, uh, an affidavit, this is a rare thing. We find it in these two apparently different um, letters. And he gave us a search warrant. And then we got all of the uh, writings of the main suspect, who was the husband. And spoiler alert, um, we were able to show that he wrote both of those. And the jury said that the first one clearly showed premeditation. So he's doing life without parole. And an interesting case where I was brought in sort of as a... Oh, uh, yes, of course. Yeah. In the pretrial motion, the prosecutor requested me, still an FBI profiler, supervisory special agent, I came up to York County and testified, not to the case itself, that's I just right. laid out the uh, sort of the, the generic testimony about what is linguistics, what is forensic linguistics, which, of course, Rob could do 
just as well, if not better. But they also wanted to hear my experience with Unabom, other right. cases in which I've testified, in which there have been convictions, the judges had allowed this testimony. So all I did was lay out sort of the law and, 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 and court precedent, legal precedent around the U.S. And then the judge, based on that alone, finally, then I think you testified next about the specifics of the case, much of which you just shared. And next thing you know, the judge allowed you to testify in the trial itself, and it wound up in a conviction. Yeah, that's how I passed the fry. And when all this was happening, I told the prosecutor, wait a minute, why don't we ask Jim to come up and he can put the stamp of, yes, this is the kind of analysis that uh, the BAU does. I mean, you can't get a better uh, um, recommendation than that. And, no, and it's it very works. smart. Very yeah. smart. And, and real yeah. quick, you mentioned, one second, you mentioned Fry, which is related to Daubert, just so our audience knows. These are court decisions, Supreme Court, et cetera, that sort of uh, uh, are sort of the umbrella over when what experts can testify uh, in, 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 to certain expertise in certain court proceedings. We don't have to get into the weeds on that, but right. the Fry decision, Daubert, there's even mm-hmm. Kumo tires other along with that about yeah. how certain experts can testify. I love if you watch the movie My Cousin Vinny. Uh, yeah. The girlfriend comes up. She wasn't a PhD or anything right. uh, in that regard, but she she knew cars. So under Fry or Daubert, technically, if she can prove her experience in that regard, she would be allowed to testify. So uh, yeah, but you know, course- we teach we teach an expert witness course now with uh, the law school. And the law school professor insists on showing that clip from my cousin Vinny to every incoming guest. They use it all over the place in law schools because, you know, the, the advisor was uh, had, had just graduated law school or something there. That is a great clip. But, you yeah. know, Jim, over the years, I've heard you talk about this McGuire case. And mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, I think that, um, Rob, you, you gave some assistance on that end. Jim, why yeah. don't you share with our audience what that case was about? Yeah, I also just wrote about that uh, in, in my latest book. And, uh, and of course, Rob has a, has a uh, supporting role in that. But essentially, the New Jersey State Police contact me and say, yeah, we have this uh, woman who we think got tired of her husband and she first drug him, uh, you know, with, with narcotics of some sort then shot him and then cut them up into pieces and put them into uh, plastic bags and suitcases, punched holes in the suitcases. Yeah, matching luggage now. Matching it's... luggage, of course. Good and, drives, the... and drives from central New Jersey, somewhere into Delaware, somewhere along the Chesapeake, and somehow in the middle of the night throws these three suitcases in. And she thinks she's really smart because she punched holes in the suitcases. They're right. going to sink because when a body decomposes, it releases it released different uh, chemicals yes. and uh, gases. Mm-hmm. And of course, it could possibly. What she did right was punch holes in the uh, suitcases. What she did wrong was not punch holes in the plastic bags in which she wrapped them. So right. about two days, a week after that, three suitcases are basically found bobbling, bobbling in the water by the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. So I don't know any of this at the time. They're found. Uh, they, they find the head, they take a picture, do a reconstruction. Someone recognizes the now missing husband from central New Jersey of Melanie McGuire. And, uh, and she becomes a suspect. It takes about a year to, um, uh, to actually arrest her, but the New Jersey State Police finally do. They're getting all their ducks lined up and everything in that regard. And then all of a sudden, these letters show up. Rob described 
essentially both of those letters, but certainly one was a uh, pre-offense letter on the windshield in the Hummer case, but other ones, it's it's like, Rob, if someone only came up with a name for these kind of letters. <laughs> and and I, I did, and Rob nicely cited me in in, a, in articles he's written, uh, as well as articles I've written. POMIC. We can, mm-hmm. POMIC is the acronym, Post-Offense Manipulation of Investigation Communication. Lots of syllables, five words. You've got to be an FBI it, agent to love that. <laughs> I do. I do. It, it was a phenomenon that was happening back in the nineties and two thousands that no one really subscribed perfect. to. That's right. Uh, or, or, or 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 they they didn't subscribe to it in terms of giving the name. So uh, it was a pomic, as I called it, but about six or seven different letters that somehow were finding their way to the media, to uh, right. police departments, to lawyers, yep. and uh, all claiming that this Melanie McGuire was innocent. Her husband was a hit, you know, a mob hit or some angry girlfriend. So it wasn't even one story. It was different things going back and forth. Um, the state police asked me to look at these letters. I compared them to the known writing. So first of all, I looked at the letters themselves, and my opinion was they were all written by the same person, even though they came across as with different you know, writing styles, whatever. And then I got the known writings through the state police, a search warrant of Melanie McGuire, and compared those um, to these POMICs, uh, seven of them, I think, total. And I rendered an opinion. They were, in fact, uh, we don't, in linguistics, and, and Rob and I use a little bit different terminology here, but we don't say she's the one that wrote it. We don't sit on the on the stand and say that defendant is the one that wrote these letters. At least the the uh, sort of the formula that I use uh, is um, these letters are consistent, inconsistent, or no decision. We said in this case, McGuire, consistent and exceptionally distinctive. So not just consistent that they kind of look alike or, you know, they read alike, but exceptionally distinctive puts it at a, a very high bar in terms of the odds of it being anyone else are very remote. Anyway, I testified in that uh, in the preliminary hearing, and uh, we knew the defense hired someone who Rob had just gone up against a few times. Um, and she's a, uh, a linguist and a forensic linguist. And we don't have to get into all the weeds there either, Rob, but uh, yeah. but there's some kind of tricks that she would do and the same kind of testimony. And Rob kind of saw through her, uh, some of her testimony and her counter reports. And while Rob didn't testify in the McGuire case, he was there to sort of uh, direct the prosecutor eventually in the cross-examination and all. Right. So, so anything so you want to listen to. So another scene is, so I'm driving to New Jersey. I'm on Long Island and uh, it was really hot and you know the traffic was horrendous and i was sort of queasy i i'm not sure i ate anything yet uh that day because i wanted to make sure i was on time and i get there and i'm greeted by one of the detectives and not jim jim wasn't there and so the detective welcomes me and he starts um telling me all about the case and he says that this guy is um, casting in, in the Atlantic uh, and he's fishing. And he says to himself, wow, look at this. This was some high level uh, um, uh, luggage. He says, wow, this is great. Look at that great luggage. And he, he <laughs> snags it and he starts pulling it in. And he says, wow, maybe my ship's finally come in. Oh, <laughs> boy, I, if nothing else, I, I have this great suitcase. Let's see what's in it. Uh, and it's the torso okay, uh, of Mr. McGuire. And then he goes on in greatest of detail how 
he found it odd that the nurse didn't know to slice this part of the stomach and that part of the stomach. And I'm queasy and it's like 90 degrees. So I'm saying, let me get to the language data, please. I've had enough for today. Jesus. You know, you thought you thought the night before Woodstock was tough. This was even tougher, it sounds like. You know, I, I got to ask you both a question here. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when you testify as experts uh, in certain cases, the defense is always going to counter with their own expert. Not and always. Not right. always, but in many cases, yes. Like, like in the case you just talked about yeah. in, this, in this case here, there was a woman that testified, and, and I have to ask, was she totally opposite in her conclusions? I don't want to get into the weeds. Or was she consistent with you guys or totally opposite? Well, this happens a lot, and and in this case, what a lot of time other experts will do, well, they won't, they won't even come up with their own opinion about who wrote the letters. They won't even say no. This in this case, Melanie McGuire didn't write these letters. Yeah. In this case, all this other linguist did, and she did wind up testifying in the trial. All she did was attack my methodology, that I didn't use the proper you know, pi square, you know, uh, uh, statistical formula, whatever. And it's all this mathematical, statistical stuff. And the, the prosecutor later told me the jury's like sitting there, what? And, you know, she, has, she doesn't make any sense to her in that regard or to the jury. And I should also add at this point, it's not my phone. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, this charge that was put on this Melanie McGuire, she had a couple, she had a homicide charge. Yeah. But all it was was obstruction of justice, which Ray, you know, and Rob, you've learned over the years, it's a process crime. No process, right. it's you, something you have to add in to a crime if, if some other little event occurred. And really the prosecution's goal in that case was just to have someone with some level of expertise and authority, me in this case, describe to the jury somehow these letters and somehow saying where they came from. And although the judge wouldn't let me describe uh, POMIC to the jury, the concept of post-offense manipulation of investigation communications, basically letters written after the fact, usually by the killer, to cover up the crime. And Rob explained it in the Hummer case. And they wouldn't let me use that term because I had not published on it yet, but I'm still explaining the, the, the premise of it. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a, so because it was only it was a minor crime, what the prosecutor wanted was the murder one conviction. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, so she did not want them to, to, to have something else to find her guilty of. So the final uh, verdict uh, comes in. And, and by the way, when the prosecutor told me later she's cross-examining this other linguist, the jury is like, uh, uh, or even on the, the, the linguist initial testimony, they're like bored. They're not even paying attention. Prosecutors, good prosecutors know how to look at them. So she gave like a 10 minute cross to this person and basically ended it. And, Left you know, uh, uh, five days, a week later, the verdict came in guilty on all counts except acquitted on the obstruction of justice. Right. And this person went online and had a colleague of ours that somehow wrote this paper about a year and a half later. This was a big victory for their methodology of forensic linguistics, as opposed to what I had successfully used in the Unabom case and, and dozens of other cases since then. But somehow this was a victory. But but yet, well, it, was, it was an outlier in that regard. I look yet, at you guys. Ray, just one second. Yet virtually all forensic linguists, even if we don't do things exactly the same, except for this person, um, we all agree that it's a yeah. very, very valid science. And exactly. We, yeah. 
Exactly. So you have, the, you have these hired guns out there, which which kind of sits there, and, and all they're trying to do is punch holes in in your methodology or how you arrived at your decision. They're not punching holes in the decision, just how you arrived at it, which they're, yeah. they're not arguing and saying, hey, we don't disagree with what you have. We just don't agree how you got there. Yeah, now that can be a valid thing, but it can be a very invalid thing. And then, I mean, as you guys know very well, a, a court case is like, I don't know, a uh, Super Bowl football game in terms yeah. of strategies. And we don't want to throw too much weight over here because we really want them to decide on the ultimate uh, issue, which in this case was a murder and they found her guilty. Yeah, and a good expert. I have no problem being challenged on the stand. You know, make yep, it legitimate. Don't make stuff up that just and you change it like every time you testify. You'll yep. testify one way and state something, and this particular person does this, and then a trial two years later or a hearing of some sort, it's like the opposite thing is coming forth. So, uh, yeah, and and, and but anyway, so look, yeah, I know. On. Yeah, we. Uh, it, it's unfortunate that uh, you get people in 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 all sorts of fields like that. But forensic linguistics, just to go back, is really, and what you said in the beginning, Ray, nobody knows it. I mean, Roger Shai, a distinguished research professor at Georgetown, has now published 45, I think it is, books on forensic linguistics, 40 of them with Oxford University Press. Yet, the, the legal world is so enormous that people still are, are unaware of it. Um, and it has opened up so many doors for me and I think for you too, Jim. I mean, we were able to do cases that we never would have been able to. And I mean, I wound up at Quantico with you, which I thought was pretty damn yeah. cool. And you and I have been Christ to Amsterdam and you introduced me to Tammy Gales, who was the co-director of our graduate program now there. We were in Seattle, Barcelona, um, and then Amsterdam rooted you to London, uh, when, yeah. And that, that's an interesting story and I can't get into detail, but I, I was signing up linguists in England, uh, for a rapid response linguistics thing. And that, that had to do with, uh, the bombing of the, uh, American embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. In the middle of that, I wound up in a room in a building in London. I And the woman who was the head uh, there said to me, I suppose you'd like to know where you are. And I said to myself, oh, was it that obvious? I had no idea. I said, um, yes. I mean, I knew I had to enter various pods of glass where uh, I was being observed. And I was with this uh, person who would introduce me and she said, um, you are in XYZ headquarters. I said, oh, that would explain the metal shutters on the windows and things like that, you know, that would drop down. So to make a long story short, I was asked to uh, create an entire day demonstration of forensic linguistics, forensic phon phonetics. And I gathered together a whole bunch of people who were there in England and did the presentation. And they said to me, okay, I want you to create a multi-day, what was it, like five days training for our people uh, in the run-up to the London Olympics because we want the maximum intelligence gathering ability from threats and from chatter and everything. 
can you do that? I said, yes. And I said, and I know exactly who I am going to invite to do it with me. And it was Jim. So we and, went uh, over and yeah. You and on. I was fortunate enough to have been assigned to the Athens Olympics in 2004. Yep. So I could mm-hmm. parlay off of that experience uh, in, in, you know, in, in, in theater, so to speak, in Athens for the whole time. So it was great to uh, work with you on that training block. It was about a year before they were really taking it serious. And you know what? They did great work. Maybe our training helped a little bit because nothing bad happened during those Olympics. I I like to give us full credit, actually. That's a win, guys. That's a win. (laughs) Hey, so, Rob, I understand that you're doing some work with this Innocent Project. Yes. Can you tell our listeners exactly what this Innocence Project is? Sure. And how things are going with it? Well, at Hopstra, we have uh, a forensic linguistics innocence project where we re-examine language evidence, which could be um, threatening uh, calls, threatening messages, threatening letters, um, interrogations, interviews, witness testimony that put people on death row. And of course, sometimes we find out that everything was valid. Uh, But we very often also find out, and I guess that's why we get these cases, that people, I mean, I I remember watching seven hours of a videotaped interview, at the end of which the police officer got up and went out of the room and said, he went for it, he confessed. Now, I think he really believed he did, but he didn't. There was no confession there, you see. but. If you bring a guy in who you think is guilty, I mean, it's very easy to like just listen to various things. And we started with a uh, a confession that was supposedly dictated by a suspect, but clearly was not. And as Jim pointed out to me, and I always teach, it's perfectly possible for people to be helped to confess. And you get a lot of the police officers, you know, okay, I'll go for it and I'll take a plea. All right, so it was 8 o'clock and I turned left on Smith Street. Well, no, you can't make a left on Smith Street at 8 o'clock. Oh, you're right. must have been right. Uh, so when was that? Well, at an unknown time. And you get all these these um, linguistic devices that are used by officers. But then sometimes that's not the case. And in this Chicago case, uh, these guys uh, were doing a lot of bad stuff. There were a lot of court cases against them. And this guy got caught in the middle of it. So that was what uh, we started by a forensic linguistics innocence project. Nice, nice. And the only people who can work on it are registered Hofstra students. I must say people really are very, very much for justice and uh, are always volunteering. And we train a lot of uh, officers, investigators, um, uh, Mounties. very, very interested in forensic linguistics and the ability to extract intelligence. Uh, Jim uh, trains them all the time. I've been training them a lot. And uh, it, it's just a win-win. And Rob, I know you well enough that you present this way, this, present this to your students. I've been involved with some other Innocence Project folks, and I sometimes think there's a bit of a... Uh, Leaning one know, way, yeah. Prop, well, prop, propaganda so- forming and... And all I like to say to the students when I get in front of them is that as a for, as any expert, quite frankly, but certainly as a forensic linguist expert, you're not to be a crime fighter, but you're also not to be an advocate for the defendant. Absolutely. You have to look right down the middle, objective, 
uh, evidence, follow the evidence, and maybe that your opinion will help. Maybe it will not help. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. It's cloudy. But I always like to tell people that uh, it's fine to be, you know, a true crime aficionado. It's fine to be a very much innocence project, but you got to go in objective. And just because maybe the head of this innocent project said this person is innocent doesn't mean he is. The vast majority of people in prison are guilty and they're there for what they uh, you, can't, you can't be anti-cop and be a good scientist, and you can't be yeah. always pro-cop and be a good scientist. Exactly. It just that's really, that's really good, really good advice, guys. Now, Rob, you've been doing this for four decades. Give me the most interesting case you ever worked, hmm. if you can. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, I've been a linguist for four decades. I've only been doing this for 15 years, but that, I'm avoiding the answer. I think the Coleman case was pretty heartbreaking because this guy was getting death threats to him, to uh, threats against his employer, uh, and said, have her stop preaching the bullshit. She was a televangelist. If I can't get her, I'll get you. If I can't get you, I'll get your family when you go on tour with her. And there was a series of death threats that came in over a period of several months. And um, the uh, detective who lived across the street from them put a camera in his son's uh, bedroom, trained on their house, because they were also getting letters in their mailbox to see. So one morning, the guy, Chris Coleman, he goes to the gym at like 640 or so. And a little while later, he calls the detective and he says, I can't get my wife on the phone. Go over there. So he went over there and his two little boys and his wife are strangled to death. Oh, jeez, That's terrible. And Coleman's story quickly fell apart. The time of death didn't work. Uh, he had scratches over his arms where his wife apparently fought back. Of course, the poor little boys didn't fight back. And um, oh. it, he was asked if there was any trouble with his marriage. He said no, but they got his phone. And he'd been having this affair all over the world with this ex-friend of his wife's. And that very day that he killed them, he was supposed to, he had promised her he was going to a divorce lawyer. and. So as horrible as all that is, think about them not knowing. They're good, good police force, excellent police force. They really knew what they were doing, but they didn't know that maybe if they had gotten Jim or me early on and not treated just as a threat case, but as a authorship case, or if nothing else, a linguistic demographic profile, to narrow the suspect pool who might be sending these notes, we might have discovered that it was the husband and then the family would still be alive. Yeah, that, that breaks my heart to hear that because there's children involved and, and uh, they didn't do anything to anybody. Oh, that's just so sad. Is that so the sad. case? Wasn't there writings on the wall, Rob, that you actually yeah, compared? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, not only did he send these letters, but then after he killed them, he had a red paint and he scrawled, you have paid, uh, fuck you, stuff like that, even on one of his sons. Oh, my God. 
So we were able to connect, you know, he couldn't very well. And, and yeah, so that those writings were consistent with the, uh, the death threats and they were consistent with, with his known writing. So that, that, you know, when you think about things and, and that's something that really bothers you, even though you do this for a living and even law enforcement officers will tell you the one case that bothers them the most it always comes back to where there's children involved always comes back to that. Yeah. And, you know, because we, we always like to think in this, what Jim and I do is we never want to forget about the victims. The victims are really, really important. And so many times when law enforcement or people look at cases, it's all about the hunt and they forget about the victims. And uh, we never want to do that on this show. But uh, where do you see Rob? Now, both you and Jim are going to retire soon. Where do you see the future of forensic linguistics? Where do you see that going? Well, the uh, International Association for, of Forensic Linguists is growing like mad. There's now uh, an organization uh, in South Africa for Africans. Um, I give talks at the uh, a Tamil uh, organization of India. Um, the last big meeting was in the Philippines. Um, our program that Jim and I teach in uh, has now um, graduated around 200 people. Uh, some of them have become FBI, CIA, NCIS, Homeland Security Intelligence. We should explain uh, that real quick, Rob, the workshop. I started at the FBI. I did four of them there. Of course, yes. 05, 06, 07, and there was no more linguists in the FBI. And Rob came to me, hey, uh, Jim, is there any chance we can move that workshop to Officer University? I said, the FBI doesn't own it. I don't own it. Sure. We said, well, Jim, would you come and teach it with me? And we've been doing it ever since, 15 years now. Yeah. Outstanding. Outstanding, gentlemen. Well, you know, you guys are the forefathers of a lot of things that are happening with linguistics when you look at it. I mean, you don't want to say, you know, that's, that's kind of deep, but you guys are really uh, you guys are really the founding fathers of, of the development of this. Now, there's going to be people coming after you that are going to expand it. But you guys really got this thing off the ground. And, and you both should be congratulated on that. You really should. Uh, because that's a lot of great work. And it's been ex really, really helpful to law enforcement as well. Well, that's nice to say. I think people like Roger Shy in the, in the U.S. and Malcolm Colthorpe in the U.K. Were, are definitely, you know, ahead of us. But uh, we picked up the ball and ran with it and they're still out there working. So yeah. uh, and we came upon it from different perspectives. Me already in law enforcement, not a linguist, but uh, you know, the trial by fire with Unibom. And then we took it uh, to that uh, next level. So, and we also wanted to get it out in the public. And uh, there's a few linguists over the years. Oh, this Fitzgerald guy has his website and he, he had this, you know, mini series manhunt Unabomber. But I saw that as a very positive thing about the FBI, first of all, but also about forensic linguistics. If we can get out there, Rob's been in a book or two as a character, uh, a, yeah. a novel, actually a rock and roller turned linguist is the, uh, what book is that again, Rob? Um, Bones to Ashes, Kathy Reich, yes. who That's is right. the originator of the TV show Bones, because she's actually a forensic anthropologist, just like we're That's actually right. linguists. Right, outstanding. So if you can get this stuff out there, it, get the stuff out in the media, which we're doing, of course, now, and the other sites, not not the charlatan uh, stuff. That's right. Stuff. My brother, who invented Shanana, 
and also is a fabulous novelist and has always had great reviews and has sold all his books to uh, Imagine um, Studios. Um, he and I now, after seven years, have finally finished a trilogy, which is 1,200 pages, wow. in which yeah. the main character is, oddly enough, a forensic linguist and gets involved with all sorts of counterterrorism and things like that, based on a lot of what I learned, like from Jim and everybody at Quantico. Um, and we have a fabulous uh, uh, agent, Rose DiMola, who was the agent for the Hunger Games uh, books. Oh. Do you have a wow. name or a publication date coming up? Title no, we, uh, she's shopping it now to publishers. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, well, when, but, it, when it's released, you'll come back on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about that. I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear all about it. i like to read it first and then hear all about it, how you got so, to that. 1,200 so. pages. You got to settle in. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't mind doing that. I love to read, Rob. That's I love right. to read. I know you do, Ray. I know. You've said it many times on the show, and it's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've had you here for uh, over an hour, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, Rob. I mean, is there anything that you have that you want to uh, lay on our audience, uh, some advice or well, uh, anything of that nature? People who, who are really interested in forensic science and, well, true crime, I guess, and justice. I mean, as Jim and I have learned, forensic linguistics – really opens the door to scientific analysis of things that that wasn't possible before. I remember very clearly one time Jim and I gave a uh, a presentation, maybe it was on Ellis Island, and uh, a detective came up and said, you know, it never occurred to me that we could use language to solve a case because we have this cold case and there were letters at the scene, but it never occurred to me. Uh, that it could be of use. Could you guys take a look at it? And so uh, that's what we need to spread the word because there is a lot of intelligence, there's a lot of content in language evidence that is not being utilized now. Yeah, so at Hofstra, Hofstra, we're the only, well, uh, we're the only face-to-face, uh, -face, I should say. Uh, Jim at Penn West has an MA in Forensic Linguistics. We have a two-year MA in linguistics, uh, forensic linguistics, that also teaches for phonetics, phonology, and everything, and that my students are required to work on live cases, both in our Forensic Linguistics Innocence Project, and a couple of years ago, these investigators came to us. They were tracking a serial killer across the American South and wanted our help, so my interns, a Wolf Hofstra student, and I spent around eight months uh, working on that. This woman was apparently marrying um, veterans and uh, depleting their resources, claiming she had kids uh, that she didn't have, getting money out of the uh, Veterans Administration, and then staging their suicides. And we showed that she had written the suicide note of one of them. Outstanding, outstanding. Oh, that's, that's great. I love hearing that. That's great news. And had they not come to you, they'd still be looking. That's right. Exactly. They, they thought so, but they had no proof. So we have a four, a five year BAMA where uh, you get to count uh, graduate uh, courses for your BA as well. And 
Then we have our uh, MA and uh, we have the Institute that Jim and I are co-directors of, and then the Forensic Linguistics Innocence Project. So Hofstra is a hotbed of uh, forensic linguistics and uh, our friends over at Aston uh, in the UK are the other hotbed. And Penn West University. I said, yeah. I love Penn yeah. West. Yeah. yeah. Now we, have, we have Mark Visona from uh, yeah. Penn West, yeah. George yeah. Yeah. has joined us at Hofstra. Well, uh, Jim, you have anything uh, you want to add before we close out? No, just uh, it's, it's been a pleasure all these years knowing you, Rob. My last story about Rob is this. Um, I think the first time I came to Hofstra, it was 2008 to teach. And I think the first time I may have stayed in the dorms or something, which right. wasn't the best experience. It was summertime, so they weren't crowded. But I think either I think one of those nights we went to your house and your family was there. And I remember I walked in the door and you pulled me aside and your four kids were there. I think all four of them. And they said, oh, Jim, they can't meet, wait to meet you. FBI profiler, forensic linguist, work on the TV show, Criminal Mind. They, they think you're a real rock star. And I looked at Rob. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. Do they know their father was an actual rock star? Yeah, 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 but that's different. So come on in. And the kids are all sitting around me asking all these questions. So it's interesting how life and, 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 you know, kids look up to other people and everything is relative in terms of what even the word rock star means, but that's why we're linguists, right, Rob? We help figure those things out. <laughs> you got it, Jim. Very good. That's, that's great. Well, Hey, listen, that's going to be a wrap for this show. Everybody. We thank you for turning in and make sure you subscribe to cold red podcast and follow us on all, all cold red podcast, social media platforms. We'll see you next week with another special guest. Until next time, stay safe and be aware of your surroundings. Goodbye, everyone. Take care, Ray. Bye, Jim. See ya. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for everything.